Welcome to episode number 15 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at creating a global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible powders and dusty materials. Today's episode, we're doing an interview with Michael Merrington. Michael is a hazardous area inspector and auditor and consultant um, really around the world. He's from Vancouver to, to start with, but over the last 14, 15 years, he's been traveling through Australia, through Italy, Kazakhstan, uh, many other countries in the world in the oil and gas space starting, and then in more general areas after that, including um, sawmills and lumber mills handling combustible dust. Today's episode, we're talking about international standards related to hazardous areas, related to explosion safety, um, and areas that have the threat of, of fire and explosion safety. We'll be covering things like the IEC, the International Electrotechnical Committee Standards on Explosions, so IECX, that system for rating equipment, um, other systems for defining competencies for people like inspectors, uh, people that are designers for explosion-safe equipment, people that are responsible persons in these areas. Um, these include COMPEX, they include EXAM, they include uh, IEC-related personal competencies. And we'll really be covering the groundwork of what this looks like internationally. I won't lie, I learned quite a bit in this episode. Um, I was learning as I go. It was a bit hard for me to even think of the questions to ask Mike because his knowledge and, and level of understanding of the international side was so great. And then I'm kind of just learning as I go. And really, I want to share this so that the listeners, um, of which we have, we have many in international, but a lot in North America as well, will get a good background. As I, I mentioned earlier in the year, our goal for this year is understanding combustible dust as a global challenge and developing global solutions. As part of that, we really got to get a handle on, well, how is this handled throughout the, the different regions of the world, what's working, what's not working, and how can we combine that with the other systems that we have? So I know you'll learn a ton in this interview as well. Um, I'd listen through to the end. All the resources that we mentioned will be at dustsafetyscience.com slash 15. Uh, and as always, I just want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for supporting our work and being part of the community. And I'm really looking forward to um, continuing to produce this podcast as we move forward. And without further ado, here's our interview with Michael Merrington. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we have an interview with Mike Merrington, who's a hazardous area inspector throughout different regions of the world. And we'll be talking about what the international hazardous area, hazardous location codes look like, how explosion protection is treated in, in various regions of the world, and how maybe it's not treated the same way here in North America or different parts. So I, I really appreciate having Mike on. I want to say, Mike, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. So I met Michael first on on LinkedIn, actually, through some material that maybe I was sharing or he was sharing. And we started talking through chat and, and just discussing different areas of hazardous areas, um, dust explosions and gas explosions. And I kind of quickly realized that these international folks in this area, they almost have a different language than we, we seem to have here in, in North America and the US and Canada, where we're talking about NFPA OSHA, um, different areas, they're typically talking about things like IECX, which is the International Electrotechnical Commission's standards for um, explosion and hazardous areas. They're talking about COMPEX, about responsible persons. So there's a lot of the same words that we may use, but the terminology is different. It's actually when I'm trying to interact with them and, and maybe some of the listeners when they try to interact internationally, it's almost a different language. So I want to have Michael on today to 
to go through his experience. He's been a hazardous area inspector and auditor consultant for over 14 years now, um, everywhere from Kazakhstan to Italy to Australia. He's originally from Vancouver, but just I want to bring him on because his experience can start to show a, maybe a little bit of an introduction to what this language is, what the different things mean. And as we go further into the the podcasts and different interviews, then, then maybe we start to make sense of what we can bring in from the international community to what we're doing here on, on Canadian and U.S. soil. So, Mike, I kind of want to start by maybe just explaining your role a bit over the last 14 years and just sharing some of that, that story with hazards, hazards Area Inspection. Sure. Uh, so I started out as an electrician, but throughout my career, I've uh, built upon that such as doing instrumentation and controls. And the niche that I picked up on was hazardous areas, hazardous locations. I have become a auditor of hazardous area installations and have acted as SME, subject matter expert, on um, certain projects. What started it all out for me was actually in 2005, I was at a uh, chemicals recycling where. Um, business went to it and my my contractor had sent me there and the business had lit up on fire and i was told to replace everything as is so i started looking at the equipment and it was hazardous location rated gear now this is canada so the equipment was installed before 1998 which was classes and div equipment so section 18 of the Canadian Electrical Code, but after 1998, it all became zones. So the, the, the becoming harmonized with the international standards. And then Annex J in the back of the code book is classes and divisions. So I went in there and it was a mixture of the old gear and new gear. Now, I did not know what I was really looking at and my boss said at the time, replace it as is, like for like from the uh, supplier and figure it out. And so that's what I did. It was a lot of uh, explosion proof and um, EXD, explosion proof gear, and uh, a few other ones. But uh, I learned all about flame paths and how to make uh, barrier glands, connectors, uh, using tech cable, uh, MCHL. And so I did that, and I really enjoyed it. And from there, I went up to the Canadian oil sands and did a lot more of it. And then when I jumped overseas, I went to Australia, where they had a requirement for a five-day course in hazardous areas called a um, EEHA, Electrical Equipment in Hazardous Areas Certification which is an absolute requirement uh, in Australia to work on such projects as uh, LNG, oil, even the water industry, things like that. And that certification, what would be included in that type of certification? Like what would you need to get it? So the certification, this, this is going into a little more detail right off the bat, would be Australia as a country IEC, EX, is a voluntary set of standards. Australia was the first country to sign on to that full stop and also with few modifications. But then to support that, they had the legislation, so that, that put that in place to make it law. But then they passed regulations 
which then required the industry to apply it. But then a, another standards document had to be produced, AS4761, which is how to assess and apply competencies for hazardous areas. So countries like Australia have that document, while in the UK they have RG101 and COMA. So it talks about how to assess people's competencies, their levels of supervision, so therefore their levels of their level of competency required. Now to prove that competency in North America, well, I did my electrical license in Canada, my IP, um, Interprovincial Red Seal, and I have my code book, Section 18. So myself, as an electrician, took care of everything myself. No engineering input on the, on the fixes that I made in a business that was surrounded by homes, which had the potential for further fires and explosions. I, myself, the electrician, was taking care of it. Now, in the UK and Australia and Kazakhstan and all these other ones that have applied IECX or um, even the precursor of that, ATEX, which is since 1994 has been a absolute requirement for EX equipment that is hazardous area equipment sold or installed in Europe that people have had to prove competency. If I can jump in there, because I think I sort of hijacked the conversation a bit, and I want to get into the the duality between the, the equipment side and the personal company side, and you've already dug into a lot of that in probably a way that a lot of our listeners haven't really um, heard about before. But I do want to let you share maybe the the highlights of, of your story as well outside of those details. So you started off in Vancouver, you, as an electrician, as a Red Seal, you got assigned to a hazardous facility rebuild, essentially. Then you went overseas to a couple places. Was there some parts of that story that I, that we maybe missed out because I, I kind of jumped right to the, the IECX system and that sort of thing? I did the rebuild and installation and maintenance of EX equipment hazardous location equipment in Canada, but it was all verbal. It was not documentation or structure or competency assessments. That, that really didn't exist. There was the installation. You made it like it was before. And I went by what I read within the code book. It was my responsibility. And that's the Canadian Electrical Code section 18 yes yes which it, it it goes into more detail than the american nec unless you have uh, nec 500 or 505 in front of you but the regular just basic nec it's not as in depth as the canadian so when i went to the uh, canadian oil sands for our installations, yeah, we had engineered drawings and things like that, but I had never seen a hack, a hazardous area classification drawing. I never had any documentation that showed that the equipment was rated for its location. 
Like, was it within a hazardous area? Yes or no? I don't know. What zone or class and div? Uh, it was a new installation. Which So which zone was it in? I don't know. I was not privy to that information. But I, as the installer, was the one installing it. If the location drawing didn't match up with what was actually found in the field, like the 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 I-beams were in the wrong location. I'm sure that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never at all. Never in construction. <laughs> so, um, so we just made do and we installed it. We, you know, redlined a few layout drawings or as built a few drawings and that was it. But we didn't confirm that anything was within the zone or not in the zone or if the new structure or building how did it affect the dispersion rate or the the actual how did it affect the zoning we never went into the details of that and so in your international side would it would those be commonplace things to get a we call the hack a hazardous area drawing outlining it and then if any of the equipment's inside of one of those zone classed or div classed areas it has to be to a certain rating is that how that kind of works Yes. If you're anywhere offshore, even Africa, they have uh, complex um, EX inspections. So EX inspections are your final uh, inspection uh, for mechanical completion. So you should have uh, people with the competencies as the installers, same as your design engineers. They should have their one of these schemes uh, competencies. But your last line out of fans is your EX inspection, your hazardous area, hazardous location inspector. So in the UK, Australia, Kazakhstan, offshore, around the world, at that final point, if for a brand new plant, it's called a de- initial detailed inspection. This inspection is supposed to be 100% inspection of all the glands, the cable connectors, every part and accessory, every bit of the equipment so that something like a Piper Alpha or uh, those sawmill explosions in northern British Columbia, so things like that will not happen. What, what it is, is, is there's, two different, there's two different things. There's personnel certification and equipment certification. So if, if I can jump in there, I was going to see first about the, I, what I believe is the IECX system. So from my understanding, that would be the equipment side. If I actually go to the IECX website and pull up their list of standards, um, which we'll include in the show notes, it'll be at dustsafetyscience.com slash 15 for this episode, the number 15. Go there, we'll include links through to the IECX system and its standards and some of the other stuff we're talking about. If I go there, I see mostly IEC 679 or 60079. Um, dash, and then a bunch of them all the way up to maybe 50 or so. Uh, And they have things like electrical installations, design, selection, and erection, equipment protection by intrinsic safety, by increased safety, by oil immersion, um, equipment repair, overhaul, and reclamation, um, intrinsically safe electrical systems. There's, There's a whole bunch. And so is that, can you explain a bit about how that gets applied in the field in these other countries? Mm-hmm. So for the for the inspector right at the coal face doing that final inspection, 
his Bible is pretty much 60079-14 and 17. 14 is installation, basically, and 17 is for maintain, uh, maintain and maintenance. So within there, it talks about what levels of inspection. Is it initial detailed? So everything must, you are building, the EPC is building a database, an EX verification dossier, which then gets hand, handed over to the owner engineers, who then, that's the confirmation that the plant is safe. Well, to be able to do that, these inspectors have to confirm that all information is correct. So you originally have a registry of all the equipment. So you, you have to, this goes outside of regular ENI uh, electrical instrumentation work where the engineers or a, 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 an electrician with executive function uh, before mechanical completion, you want to make sure that this entire database is up and running where it's at least a bit of the information, such as all the labels and tags match the devices. Right. Even in the planning stage before you're, before you're tightening bolts and, and putting equipment in? Correct. Because in Canada, here's 10 junction boxes, go do it. That's, that's what it was. Some engineer made sure that the, the uh, design, everything matched, you know, via the data sheets, let's say 10 instruments, uh, you, you would have your 10 calibration certificates, data sheets, and somebody would do bench testing on them and yeah, go ahead, go install. What we would do is when it comes to the IEC is IEC EX is actually an online database that has all the individual certificates of every single piece of equipment. Now, this is a, a live database that is the trusted database. Like a lot of companies will, will download these certificates and have it within their own uh, CC, CCMS or you know, other document management systems. Is that database available um, to the public or do you have to be a member of IEC to access it? No, the, it is absolutely available for anybody and everybody. You, you have to ensure that you get the correct issue, revision. If a piece of equipment was built yesterday and there's a new certificate out for it today, well, you use the old certificate. So there's things like that where there can be major changes um, between the issues, revisions. So this, this is the role of the EX inspector. He is comparing the EX data plate nameplate the electrical nameplate data plate that's on the device to the actual certificate. So the certificate is downloaded. Somebody makes sure that it's the original copy and you compare the information. But then as you go through the certificate, there's details such as conditions of use, details such as multiple different model numbers or serial number ranges, which affects different things such as voltage rating, amperage rating, different parts within the device. So the thing is, is you, you can receive a, an instrument and it has 26 numbers and letters. And all those different numbers and letters mean different things such as, is it CSA rated or UL or GOST or in Metro? One of these different rated for a different country. So 
at mechanical completion, that is your last chance to catch any of these problems before you hand over for pre-commissioning or commissioning and you know maybe these things would be not be caught this is the point is that this ex inspector is supposed to be the expert at finding things that are potentially wrong so that you can punch it get it sorted out before it gets to the pre-commissioning or commissioning or even during operation stage because then the the costs of it and obviously the uh, scheduling costs blow out. Okay. And so that's definitely more background than I knew. And I, I learned a lot, even in that 10 minutes, there's a couple of, I'll call them characters that you're, you're mentioning in this, if you want to call the story about how to get explosion protection in place, you mentioned the inspector. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also potentially an equipment designer. There's an installer. And maybe the installer would be the same person that might repair the equipment. Can you kind of name who those other people would be that w- that might be involved through this kind of life cycle? Sure. Designers, that is actually a multi-discipline approach that is required. Uh, so in the rest of the world, there actually is in ATEX and IEC. IEC is working their way to it is where there's even mechanical inspectors of a mechanical equipment in hazardous areas but not to go into that too far but the the design engineers it all depends on the owner engineers the clients if they require as part of their specifications that there has to be competency by the designers well the main designers that design classify a hazardous area hazardous location creating the hack the bubble Usually that is a process safety engineer, but he needs to, he should have input from the electrical, the instrument, the meteorological data, and chemical engineers. Because when defining hazardous areas, locations, whether it be classes and divs or zones, there, there's differences between you, you, you can use IEC 60079-10. You can use IP15, which is the Energy Institute. Or you can use API 500 or 505 RP, Recommended Practice. So there's many different industry standards or norms that you can use for designing a hazardous area. The design engineer needs to know that his experience, it depends on the country or the the installation type because they could be using IP15 instead of APIRP. So it could be something new to him. So his assumptions could end up being very costly, right? which has happened on many, many of projects. So... Expanding from there, you, you mentioned a, a couple of great things. So we have the equipment standards. We have the verification dossier. We have the inspector who's sort of the last line of defense coming in and looking, okay, we have everything done. Here's all the boxes that are checked. We verify that all our equipment is rated properly and in the proper locations. We're ready to go to commissioning. How does things like this definition of responsible person, complex schemes, and, and I believe there's other schemes that are similar to complex um, that may be either available in other countries or even um, available as other options. Can, can you kind of show us the lay of the land 
on that side, on this responsible person side? Sure. Um, so to define the different roles that, like we were talking about designers, then you have installers, inspectors, maintenance, and repair. Repair is more of a niche. Designers, we covered. Installers can be the same as inspectors and maintenance. So th those those roles can installers. That's is, that that one's pretty easy to understand. But when you when you when you get into responsible persons, what that usually is is it's a technical person with executive function, or let's say a a supervisor or a manager that owns the hazardous area, the, the hazardous location installation. So if you're the EPC, let's say your floor, you're designing and doing this plant. You're installing it. Well, you need one person that is managing this. A lot of projects, the, the, the blowouts that we find are when it's mechanical or ENI people that do not have the experience with has this eat with EX telling uh, the guys with the experience of working with the set of standards of how to do it based on the standards. It says it, it lays out what the role of an EX responsible person is and what their functions are, such as basically having ownership of the installation, like having an overall awareness, understanding and ownership of that hazardous area registry of how everybody has to be has to have their own personal competency. They understand the equipment protection, and they understand that it's all certified. So it's personal certification and equipment certification, the overall registry, so the document management system of it, understanding that all these would go together into the MDR, the um, or the MRB manufacturer's record book, where all this information goes to the client. It gets handed over to the client. Well, those all sound like good things. <laughs> I mean, having one responsible person that that has that is responsible and has the oversight of the whole, say, floor area or hazardous area. Um, <laughs> when you, when you say that, it seems almost obvious to have somebody do that. But I don't know if we have that same kind of thing here in, in Canada and in, in the United States, but I mean, we'll come back to that at the end. I did want to, I did want to mention that I did see on LinkedIn that, so in order to, for Compex, there's Compex EX14, which would allow you to be a responsible person. I think I saw on LinkedIn that you actually have received that certification. Yes. And you might be the 176th person. Yes. Through Compex to do. Yeah. It's um, Compex started in the UK in, I think about 25 years ago. It was created by GATL Limited. And so there's different schemes that allow you to meet these competencies. And it was driven by the, the clients, the Chevrons, the Shells, because when these standards came out, basically the government went, here's the legislation, here's the regulation, here's the standards you use. And the companies, pe people would say they were competent. And 
the companies will go, okay, what proof do you have? They're like, oh, we've been doing this for years. I've, I've heard that before. Yeah. Competency is skills, knowledge, and experience. So it's a chicken and the egg thing. Uh, I've done it for a long time. And it's like, okay, when's the last time you did training uh, for it? Well, me, I did my third year uh, on EX, Hazardous Locations, in 2005 or 2006. I think I even did it. No, I did it after that uh, repair job that I did. So from that point onward in Canada, no one else does any further training. But the Canadian Electrical Code is updated every three years. And the international IECX standards are, you know, roughly updated every, it can be two to five, six, something like that years. So the general consensus in the standard, it says that, that further standard, like in Australia, it says you should redo it every two years. The, the IEC standards say uh, every five years. So Compex, theirs is every five years you have to redo your certificate. What is involved in that? Is it like a, a written test or a field test or you, you swear on a Bible that you know what you're doing? Or what, what's, the, what's the steps to get the certification? So certification is a, so it's always going to be a third party. Um, so for a company to get certification for their personnel, it'll be through a third party provider. So the likes of JTL, their UCAS, a, um, a accreditation to ISO 17024, which is um, assessors and assessment of people. So it's to these international recognized standards to raise the quality level of documentation of assessors, making things more clear-cut and well-known and traceable and higher quality amongst all subjects. So Compex is one of those schemes where for the installer uh, inspector, he would do Compex 01 to 04, 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, I think, are EXD, N, E, so flame-proof, explosion-proof, increased safety, uh, non-sparking, non-arcing, and then the other ones are intrinsically safe, uh, EXI. By doing that course, you do also use hands-on for the responsible person. You learn how to use the regulations of that country. So in the UK, I learned how to use their standards and regulations and uh, coma and RG101. So in Canada, it would be like using uh, CEC, Canadian Electrical Code, and maybe a supporting document, whatever that province or the national document, if one were to exist, which it doesn't. So, so with that, in that five days that you do the course, you gain knowledge and skills, but you don't have experience. So just because you have the certification does not mean you have competency. Just because you have experience in the field, that doesn't mean you have the correct skills and experience based on the latest standards. So it's, it is a chicken and the egg scenario. But that's where industries and countries such as Australia and UK, they've mandated you shall have EX competency 
done every five years or or something within that time frame. So that's a really good overview of the whole system. And to be honest, I feel a bit like I would need to start digging in more and increasing my understanding to even be able to start asking some more questions on that area. And that's why I really appreciate having just your wealth of knowledge to bring it to to me, to bring it to the listeners of this podcast. I think it's I think it's important that we start to understand these systems a little more and start to see what's working and maybe bring some of that into our North America side. I was wondering if we could switch gears. We probably have a couple more minutes left, so I won't take too much of your time, but maybe to see where those gaps might be here at home in North America, if that is your your home or wherever you're, you're at in the world. But um, I know a lot of our listeners here are are in the United States and in Canada. Is Are we following the same system or where are the holes that, that you see? I definitely see a major gap in competencies within Canada and America is actually a little more ahead depending on what state you're in. Also, also just, uh, just to go back on the EX competencies, there's actually uh, three known schemes in the world. So the three biggest or IEC actually has their own through their recognized training laboratories or certifying bodies. So that, that's called IEC uh, COPC, Certificate of Personnel Competency. Those certificates with people's pictures are on the IECX website under the same tab as the equipment certification. So personnel and equipment certification are all found on the IEC website. I will have that soon and my face will be there as well. Compex is the other one, which has been around for about 25 years. It was the first one. They jumped on it. They had, they, they saw what was required. And the, so the IEC one is, it's very controlled and very rigid. So there's high quality, I would say. Compex is very well known and it, it meets uh, clients' requirements. And then there's also uh, exam. It's a EXAM, another one that is um, just more flexible, still meets all the standards. But th- those are the th- three main ones. In Canada, their C- the IEC one is only offered partially, and only three Canadians have done it. I s- I've seen their pictures. They're on the IEC website, so you 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 can you can see who these people are, and and track them and, and, and see what, comp, what levels of competency they have, and, you know, who they did their training with. Compex has just come into Canada through um, uh, Mr. Brian Schneider, Canary HLE. He, he's doing the EX-12, the uh, design engineers course. Besides that, in Canada, see the occasional jobs for Compex inspectors. But Honestly, all, all we get was back in the day for me was in my third year of my 10-week course for two weeks, I received hazardous area training. But all it was was it was theoretical. There was no hands-on. There was no installation or inspection of the difference between forgetting an IP washer or the difference between metric and MPT thread earthing requirements, uh, grounding, bonding requirements in hazardous areas. These details are left to the electrician to know 
by him having that 700 page code book in his bag when he comes to site there i found it that people assumed they knew exactly what they had to do but when you mention these standards or any of these tiny little details they immediately put up a wall and they they become standoffish like you're tr- you're trying to make them look bad so there there is a big room for improvement in Canada for this it's really interesting to hear that and I'm, I'm a little bit curious about how this might apply we talked a lot about oil and gas and chevron and some of the the kind of really big companies out there that are covering hazardous areas but does the same sort of system apply internationally for even in a general sense, combustible dust handling facilities, but even the really small ones, if you had a, you had a wood shop that, you know, has a dust collector or sawdust that they're, they're collecting or a kind of a pellet mill or these smaller operations, do they still go through the same level of, of scrutiny and process? Yes. Um, having done sawmills, I know exactly what I did wrong back in the day. <laughs> I'll admit it. I made mistakes, but our, Supervision didn't know any different. Our client didn't know any different. Our EPC, nobody knew any different. So, I'll give you an example. Just, just the uh, about three years ago, there was a um, a hopper dust extractor. It looked like a fire in Abbotsford, BC, and the firefighters came. And well, when it comes to dust, there's a pentagon of five sides. Um, for gases and vapors, there's the fire triangle. But with dusts, when you add dispersion and a confined area, that makes the explosion worse. Well, the firefighters came along and fired a their hose right into the burning dust. Well, that dispersed it and caused an explosion. This is all on live TV. And they're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And one of the guys, you know, uh, three of them got engulfed, but they were wearing their, you know, fire-rated gear. And one of them twisted their ankle. And they're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. The the cloud of explosive burning dust was uh, probably about seven meters across. Yeah, we'll share a video to that because we've seen the, we had the video, we've shared it before. And the firefighters luckily have protective gear on. I've seen... And it's it's not necessarily the firefighters' fault in that it's the same as when you're doing these installations a number of years ago. The level of awareness aren't just there, but I've also seen other videos of firefighters doing the same thing with no gear on, and had that same flash fire or explosion if it's inside the hopper have happened. Things could have been much worse. One of the firefighters was from the video looks like he was kicked back about probably five feet, and certainly the the, the pressure and and that could have been enough to cause concussion. From my understanding, it didn't in that case. But um, so it's, it was it was very dangerous. And we just had in January of this year, um, time of recording this episode, it's January twenty fourth, two thousand nineteen. Earlier in the year, we had a, a firefighter pass away in the states fighting a hopper fire, and we don't know the specifics around it yet. It's being investigated. But one firefighter was injured quite severely. Another was was fatally injured at a, a explosion or a flash fire at a grain mill. So these are real educational issues that we we need to get out there. Um, and then when I hear you talk about things like this verification dossier and having certification on all your equipment and defining responsible persons, it seems like some of the answers to some of those questions are 
are within that base of material. And maybe we're just not, you know, adopting them here. Um, and I don't want to, we have a system as well and there's NFPA and there's OSHA and, you know, there's a national grain handling standard in the United States and there's different parts. I think they're all parts to the, the puzzle that we need to look at. And our, our kind of tagline for this year is understanding combustible dust as a global problem, a global challenge and, and coming up with these global solutions. So I'm really trying to see how we can bring all that information together. And I think this episode will really give people a, a great introduction to some of these topics. The reason that we didn't go in real deep on any of them was more because of my lack of experience than Michael's. Um, just even if we can get you back on to talk about some of these talks in more detail, that'd be really helpful. Is there any kind of one thing, because we're getting close to sort of to wrapping up, is there one thing you'd like to leave the, the listeners with encompassing kind of all your experience and just all the information you've shared? So to expand just a little bit on the, the dust, in British Columbia, in mid-2010s, there was four sawmill explosions. WorkSafe came up with the idea of a water mist dust dust suppression system. Instead of making it better, they found wet dust is more explosive and conductive. It killed more people. These can be found. You can Google it. Uh, it's quite easy to find. And th- this, this was by the government agency, WorkSafe, or um, semi-private, or WorkSafe WCB. What I, I feel the a big roadblock is there is so many different so many different boards, so many different standards, so many different groups. North America has AHJs, authorities holding jurisdiction. So one authority may be really good, but then you go to other ones, they haven't a clue. And it's not their fault. They don't have the awareness, perhaps. In Australia, it's clear cut who the, it's either the, the state is responsible or it's one body. While in Canada, it, in other parts in the U.S., it's, it's you know, the whole rainbow of uh, go to A to Z and you got a couple different organizations and people are protecting their fiefdoms and fighting over it. So NFPA and all these other ones, people saying, we already have everything for this. But the problem is, is that there isn't that competency scheme from beginning to end, from designer to installer to inspector to responsible person. And then hand over to maintenance and operations because they have to maintain the equipment. They, they need to understand the, it's, it's the entire life cycle. And to be able to do that, there has to be an overall general awareness campaign amongst all these people, bringing them all together. Because it's going to be human nature of all these people within these organizations to be we know what we're doing you're, you're telling us we're wrong no we're trying to give you awareness and it's like well i've never heard of these explosions just because you haven't been looking for it doesn't mean it hasn't happened the the, the rail car disaster in quebec that killed 80 people the hazard ex.com um sean sean from ex veritas lists every single explosion worldwide that he comes across uh osha in the u.s does it for dusts but they only this year 2018 started having an online interactive database 
only this year. Other countries have had online databases since mid-2000s, late 2000s. Now people will go, well, this will cost a lot of money. Well, in today's environment, to be able to get projects going, you have to take account into account all stakeholders. The stakeholders aren't just the shareholders in the company. The most important one is the public. If the public is afraid and doesn't understand anything that you're doing, your project's not going to get off the ground. The government, unless they're corrupt, is going to deny it. Even Kazakhstan has applied these IEC standards. And the reason is, is that it raises the quality level of everything. People's competencies, the equipment, the document management systems. It's reducing the holes in the Swiss cheese from lining up, making everything as low as reasonably practical alarm. It's to make it so that the systems are not would not have a large schedule or cost impact, but making it so something like Piper Alpha and other instances like that onshore, offshore, um, Imperial Sugar, Montara, FPSO in Australia, it's to ensure these things do not happen because it's bad for the environment. It, it kills people and animals, and it kills the industry. People may want to say, you know, I don't use any oil and gas. Your plastic kayak, your rubber shoes, your everything you use is from a petrochemical product. We need these resources, but we need to use them sustainably and not in pollute the environment and to not cause spills and to not cause explosions. And that's why many countries have applied these. So things as ISO 9001, uh, so your quality management systems, uh, many, many companies applying for, for contracts uh, for these projects. You have to prove that your LTIs, lost time incidents, are very low. You have to prove you have ISO 9001. It's the way the world is going. It's up to us to really kind of keep up, too, with the larger scale process safety hazards. And to promote it. It is right. for the greater good. Yep. So I want to, I don't want to go too long because I want to respect your time a bit. And I think, unless you have one kind of real pressing thing that you want to address at the end here, is there anything else you'd like to? kind of at least make sure we cover in this interview? Just, just to understand that everywhere in the world is different, but there is many similarities. Just like, like when we've been talking, I've tried to use both acronyms from both sides of the pond so that anybody listening can understand. And for people to realize in certain countries, it's the state or the the, the country itself that regulates the job that's going on. While in, let's say, California, Los Angeles itself, the city or county would regulate what is going on. So these authority holding jurisdiction are like nothing elsewhere in the world. It's inefficient. It's repeating the same thing again and again, but it's not the competencies between the people or the, the, the knowledge and the, their own systems are not copied between all the states or all the provinces. So to understand that. I think that's a really important place to kind of leave off. And I think improving that 
communication between the different groups. Um, definitely improving the awareness and educating. I mean, that's what we're trying to do with the Combustible Essence Database, with this podcast, with bringing experts on like yourself and just sharing that out, um, with partnering with other groups that have information and access to um, not just incidents for the sake of reporting incidents, but incidents that we can learn from, near misses that we can learn from, um, promoting research in the area. I think those are all really important topics and things that will help us get to having safer industries, both here in North America and around the world. And I know this is a big step for us and on the podcast to have start bringing in that international um, material and start to learn from that. So the community can start to learn. And I really appreciate Michael taking time to, to go through that with us. So with that, I just want to say thanks. Thanks, Michael. And I think we'll probably have to try to get you back on the podcast at some point to dig in deeper in some of these topics. Oh, definitely. If, if we, ever want to concentrate on personnel competency, personnel certification or equipment certification, how to potentially do things more efficiently. Um, I would love to share that knowledge with um, yeah, people around the world. It makes our jobs, you and I, much easier when other people understand the ideas we're trying to get across instead of get the awareness out amongst the ether instead of each individual person one-on-one. Well, I appreciate that. I want to say thank you again. And I know the the listeners will find this episode interesting and I look forward to, to getting out there in the world. What a great interview with Michael. I really appreciate him coming on and sharing his, his great expertise in this area. He's obviously well-traveled and well-versed in international explosion protection, international hazardous materials and hazardous area classification. And it really shows. And I, like I mentioned on the kind of the onset of this interview, a lot of this was almost speaking a different language to me, coming from a background that was really focused in North America's approach with NFPA guidelines, with OSHA's approach, um, with the U.S. Chemical Safety Board and their recommendations. And kind of when you get into zones and divs and classifications and IEC and COMPEX and exam and verification dossiers, these things were almost like they're speaking a different language. I hope that with this interview, we started to get some insight on what this looks like. Moving forward in the podcast, we'll definitely still be covering a lot of material about the specifics of combustible dust handling in grain facilities and wood processing facilities and metalworking facilities, but I also want to bring on this international perspective um, and look into what's actually working. This thing like definitions of a certified person or a responsible person, can we borrow from that and things like developing the definitions of qualified persons for DHAs? Um, it seems like there's already this certification schemes that may be available to us here in, in North America to start to define these things. So I don't have all the answers. Um, I am willing to dig in and try to figure out some of the questions. So that's really what this is all about. And I want to thank Michael again for his time. If you want to contact him, we'll have his contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 15 for this episode. And I'd encourage you to go there and leave your comments, your questions, your thoughts on what this means within our different systems and industries handling combustible dust. Who else would you like to see us interview on the podcast? What questions would you like answered? All that will help us design the material moving forward. So as always, I hope everyone has a, a safe week ahead. Um, and I want to thank you all for being part of the combustible dust safety community and going out there every day and trying to make these industries safer. Mm-hmm.